This morning we're going to talk about the integrity of God's word. This is something I preach from time to time because I think that people need to hear it and I think that I need to hear it. So when I preach it, I'm preaching to myself this morning. Amen. The integrity of God's word. I preached this last year and it just felt like this needs to be preached at least once or twice a year so that people get a handle on and a revelation of the integrity of God's word. There are three powerful examples in Scripture that I'd like to share with you this morning concerning the integrity of God's Word that illustrate the concept so beautifully. Uh, by the time we're done, I think we'll have a greater revelation, a deeper understanding of the integrity of God's Word and the power of the Word when spoken by born-again, Spirit-filled believers. Amen? First passage I'd like to talk about is the passage in the Scriptures in Genesis chapter 27 having to do with the blessing of Jacob. If you would just... Bear with me. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning. We're going to rip through it really quick, but uh, you're going to get something out of this. Genesis chapter 27, verse 1 says, And it came to pass that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his eldest son and said unto him, My son, and he said unto him, Behold, here am I. And he said, Behold now, I am old. I know not the day of my death. Now, therefore, take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver, and thy bow, and go out to the field, and take me some venison, and make me savory meat, such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. Now, Isaac was old, he couldn't see very well, and he sensed that he was about to die. He didn't know when, but he just had a sense that he was about to die. So he tells Esau, his oldest and favorite son, to go hunting and bring him venison so he can eat it and then bless him before he dies. Now, remember, the oldest son was entitled to the birthright and to the first and best blessing. And at this time, Jacob had already swindled Esau out of his birthright over some bread and a bowl of bean soup. So Rebekah overhears Isaac as he instructs Esau to hunt and prepare the venison, and she knows that Isaac is ready to pronounce a blessing on Esau, but she wants the blessing on her favorite son, Jacob. So she hatches a plot to deceive Isaac by killing a couple of kid goats, preparing the meat so it tasted like deer meat. I still don't get that. And putting the skin of the goat on Jacob's hands and neck so that he smelled and felt like his hairy brother Esau. <laughs> she tells Jacob to take the goat's meat she has prepared and to pretend to be Esau back from the hunt. Although Isaac is suspicious at first, Jacob successfully deceives his father and gives him the goat's meat to eat and wine to drink. So let's pick it up at verse 26. And his father Isaac said unto him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his raiment, and blessed him, and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven, and the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's son bow down to thee. Cursed be every one that curseth thee, and bless be he that blesseth thee. And it came to pass, as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. And he also had made savory meat, and brought it unto his father, and said unto his father, Let my father arise, and eat of his son's venison, that my soul may bless me. 
Now, after the blessing was spoken over Jacob and he had barely left his father's tent, Esau returns from hunting and brings his real venison to his father, Isaac. Now, at that very moment, you got to know that Isaac knew that he had been deceived. So what was his reaction? Now, wait a minute, Jacob, get in here. I take back everything I said. How dare you try to deceive me like that? Esau, come over here. Let's do this thing right. You're the firstborn. Come over here and get your blessing. Let's do this thing again. That's what some of us would say. But that was not the reaction of Isaac at all. And the way he reacted is very telling. It tells us something about how seriously the Hebrew patriarchs took it when they pronounced a blessing. Listen to verse 33. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly and said, Who? Where is he that hath taken venison and brought it to me? And I have eaten of all before thou camest and have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great exceeding bitter cry and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Thy brother came in with subtlety and hath taken away thy blessing. And he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. And he said, Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered, listen to this, and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy Lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants, and with corn and wine have I sustained him, and what shall I do now unto thee, my son? I want you to catch this drift. I want you to see why he trembled exceedingly. Now, Isaac was one of the patriarchs of the Hebrew people. We would call them founding fathers today. The patriarchs were not only fathers of the faith but they were fathers of the nation when they spoke their word was law their blessings carried both legal and spiritual authority they were more than mere words god was going to see to it that they came to pass so what was it that caused the patriarch isaac to tremble so exceedingly listen to me It was the knowledge that he had spoken the blessing over the wrong son and it could not be changed. It could not be modified, it could not be altered, and it could not be reversed. It was going to come to pass and there was nothing he or Esau could do about it. What if we started attaching that kind of gravity and weight to the words that we spoke out of our mouth? Imagine the change we could make in our lives in our environment. Amen. It's a complete paradigm shift that we as the people of God need to make. Amen. Hebrews 11:20 says by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So when Isaac spoke that blessing, he spoke that blessing by faith and once he spoke that blessing as far as he was concerned, it was going to come to pass. Nothing he could say or do could undo what he had already spoken. We need to have the same confidence when we speak the word of God out of our mouth. When we bless and we pronounce and decree a thing. We need to know that nothing is going to prevent that word from coming to pass. It needs to be a mindset. It needs to be an attitude that the people of God have. 
God's word is absolute. And when we speak it in our mouth, we echo the words of God. And the Bible says in Psalm 103.20 that angels are released because they hearken to the voice of the word of the Lord spoken by us, the servants of God. Amen. Glory to God. Deuteronomy 30.19, Moses said to the people of God, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Amen. You have the power to bless or to curse with your mouth. Amen. Choose to bless and not to curse. Don't bless one day and then curse the next day and undo what you said the day before. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. If we really got a revelation of the power, the import, the earth-shattering magnitude of these verses, we'd be a whole lot more careful about the things that we let come out of our mouths. Our words have power for good or for bad. We've been given the power of life and death. We've been given the ability to pronounce a blessing or a curse. And we need to take it seriously. Quit mamby-pambying around. You know, the devil's not playing games. If we're going to be successful against all the wiles of the devil, we need to know that when we speak the word of God out of our mouth, it absolutely will come to pass. The second example from Scripture that I'd like to share with you is Daniel in the lion's den. And we're not going to have time to read through all the Scriptures, but we'll read through some of it. Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom and 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of God. Now these 120 counselors were seething with jealousy over the favor that Daniel had with King Darius. They conspired together and devised a plan to trick King Darius into signing a decree that anyone who offered a petition to anybody other than the king in a 30-day period would be cast into the lion's den. Verse 8. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Even these pagan kings knew that when the king put out a decree, it couldn't be changed. It couldn't be altered. It couldn't be reversed. We can learn something from this pagan king here. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. In other words, he did not change his routine one iota 
just because a decree had been put out that he couldn't make a petition to his God. He did it anyway, three times a day, just like he normally did. I like to think that he pulled the drapes open just a little bit wider so everybody could see for sure he was praying to his God as he always did. Amen? And they noticed. Verse 11, Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. The eyewitnesses immediately reported this to the king. Verse 14, then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself. He wasn't displeased with Daniel. He was displeased with himself because he let these men paint him in a corner. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establisheth may be changed. They reminded him, King, you put out the decree and there's nothing you can do about it. You might try and find a loophole, but you can't find a loophole. He has to go in the lion's den. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, listen to this, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Not only did he carry out the decree, but he put his seal on it. He said, in effect, I said it, now it must be executed, and it must come to pass, even if I lose my good friend Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. Then the king arose early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel, And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouth that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then was the king exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. Amen. There's so much here that I want you to see. King Darius had essentially been deceived into painting himself into a corner, as I already said. He loved Daniel, considered him to be a really good friend and a great counselor and a godly man. But because the law of the Medes and Persians was such that no decree spoken and instituted by the king could be changed, there was nothing he could do to save his friend. Changing his mind was not an option, even though you've got to know that's exactly what he wanted to do. If he had given in and found a loophole and trumped up some excuse for why the decree would not be carried out, it would have been seen as a sign of weakness by the lords. It probably would have cost him his kingdom and probably would have cost him his life. The only thing that he could do was commit the life of Daniel, his friend, unto the God that he served. And that's exactly what he did. He still spent a sleepless night worrying about his friend Daniel 
And as the scripture makes clear, not very happy with himself for allowing these ministers to trick him into throwing Daniel into the lion's den. But I want to leave you with a very important detail of this wonderful story of deliverance. Darius spoke to Daniel in verse 16 immediately after he was placed into the lion's den. He spoke the last words that Daniel heard before that stone rolled over the entrance to the den, making it impossible for him to escape. And this is what he said, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. I believe King Darius had an epiphany and said, The only thing I can do to help undo what I've done is make another decree and appeal to Daniel's God and say, The God that you serve He will deliver you. Even though I can't stop this decree from being executed, your God is able to deliver you. And I believe that that decree was a higher decree from a higher source than the one that he had made. And that's why Daniel was spared by the Lord God. Job 22, 28 says, Thou shalt also decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee. Amen? Listen to this. If the word of patriarchs and the word of kings was revered and caused men to tremble and was considered to be unalterable, unchangeable, and irreversible, how much more the word of the living God spoken from the mouth of the born-again, spirit-filled Christian. Get a handle on the power of the spoken word. The mindset of the eastern people back there, those that lived in that Middle Eastern region, was one that when you made a decree, it was going to come to pass. When you made covenant, you were going to keep covenant. We don't think like that in the West, but we need to. Psalm 89, verse 34, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Psalm 138, verse 2, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. God has staked his reputation on the veracity of his word. He's saying essentially, if my word fails, I fail. I'm not who I said I was and I can't do what I said I could do. Amen. Hebrews 1, 3 in the Amplified says that the word of God is upholding and maintaining and guiding and propelling the universe by His mighty word of power. If the word of God were to fail at any moment, the universe as we know it would crumble and we would cease to exist. So the last example from Scripture I'm going to share with you and we'll wrap this up is the challenge of Jeremiah found in Jeremiah 33. This is an amazing challenge. I came across this years ago. I was just reading through the Bible, just doing my regular reading, and I was reading through this passage, and all of a sudden the Holy Ghost arrested me. I am a man of science. I have a Ph.D. in micro-nanosystems engineering. I know it sounds fancy, but I think logically and scientifically, and anytime I see something in Scripture that's scientific-sounding, it gets my attention. And this one got my attention. Jeremiah 33, starting at verse 19. And the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, If ye can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that there should not be day and night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne. I remember reading that, and I mean it just went off like a cannon on the inside of me. I immediately thought, The covenant of day and night and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, 
drew me to Genesis 8.22, and the covenant of day and night is found here. It says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So the challenge that Jeremiah was making, if you can come up with a way to stop the covenant of God, which guarantees there will be a continual cycle of day and night, then I might think about reneging on one of my promises to my King David or to any of my people. Pretty cool stuff. There are two ways that I know of that would cause the covenant of day and night as we know it to cease. Now I'm going to get a little technical on you. Just hang with me. Number one, you could slow the rotation of the earth around its axis. It currently rotates at 1,038 miles an hour, as we talked about last week, at the equator. In order to ensure that only one side of the earth faced the sun continually, kind of like the moon does when it revolves around the earth, the earth would have to be synchronized with the sun in such a way that one face faced the sun at all times. And in order to do that, you're going to have to figure out a way to slow the rotation of the earth from 1,038 miles an hour down to about 3 miles an hour. That would do it. I did the math. (laughs) You'd have everybody bacon on one side and everybody, you know, cold on the other side. It wouldn't be good. But it would stop the covenant of day and night. There would no longer be a cycle of day and night unless you wanted to stand on the day-night bridge there and just go, daytime, nighttime, daytime. That was for you, Chris. Chris is our resonant cheese lover. All right, so getting back to slowing down the earth from 1,038 miles an hour at the equator to about 3 miles an hour. The earth weighs 1.3 times 10 to the 25 pounds. Okay, let me put it in words. That's 13 trillion trillion pounds. There's no machine, no power, no method, no process, no technology known to man that could ever hope to do such a thing to something as massive as the earth. It's just not going to happen. So, number two, the other alternative is even more daunting you would essentially have to put the sun in orbit around the earth at a speed that would match the rotational speed of the earth. But there are a few minor problems with that. The sun is already moving around the center of the Milky Way galaxy at over 500,000 miles per hour. And the earth is revolving around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. So somebody please tell me how mankind with our current technology or any technology you could ever imagine, we could ever hope to do such a thing. That's exactly the point. I believe God put forth the challenge exactly that way so that men would grasp the absolute fundamental nature of God's faithfulness to his word, especially to men of this generation, because we have the science and the instruments to measure such things. We realize what an astounding challenge this is and was, even though the men of Jeremiah's day probably didn't. But we can appreciate how absolutely impossible such a thing would be. God was saying, in effect, if you can do that with your puny human inventions and technology, then I'll think about reneging on a promise to King David and to the people of God. So let me wrap this up by saying this. We need to change our mindset when it comes to the integrity of God's word and the power of faith-filled words. Our whole paradigm needs to shift in a major way. 
We need to think like Isaac, who shook and trembled at the power and the certainty of his spoken blessing. We need to think like Darius, who knew that his decree could not be changed once it left his mouth. As Jeremiah made clear, we need to speak the word. We need to know that it is the same unalterable, unchangeable, and irreversible word that governs the motion of the planets and the stars. That same force that upholds the very foundations of the universe. When we speak the word, we need to speak it with boldness, with authority, and with the knowledge that our words can be containers of life, containers of death, blessing, or cursing. If we as the people of God can ever get a handle on the unshakable integrity of God's word and the importance of that word coming out of our mouths with faith and power, we will turn this planet upside down for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And He's given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that He conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. And He's coming back again. We believe.